Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. Today we're talking about one of my favorite topics and that's immigration. Why is it my favorite topic? Because it's the foundation of the great country that we live in. This is a nation built not only on the backs, but on the, on the shoulders of people who came from another place. And we're speaking today with Bennett Savitz. He's an immigration attorney. He is with us to share with us what's going on in the world of immigration. There are so many things that are in a state of flux that this is the ideal person for us to talk to. So please join me in welcoming Bennett Savitz to the Inside BS Show. Bennett, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start with what the hell's going on, Bennett? <laughs> I mean, how, what, how do you know what to do on a day-to-day -day basis? Things are changing so much. What is going on? How, like, the last year and a half had to give you whiplash from where we were the four years prior. I'm not making a political statement, but explain to folks what it's like to be an immigration attorney today. Yeah, so that's a great question. So, um, so first of all, I guess I would start by saying how, believe it or not, even though the policies change from one administration to the next and certain emphases change um, from one administration to the next, um, the laws themselves with which we're dealing have not really changed in any significant way since 1990 for the legal immigration system and since 1996 for the immigration court system. So that's a very long time to have the same laws in place. The bad news is that those laws are woefully outdated and don't work for just about anybody regardless of what you do. Now, from time to time, an administration can come in and make certain policies. The way I like to explain it to clients is, you know, two administrations ago under the Obama administration, you know, the immigration system was old, outdated, dysfunctional, inefficient. It was a dumpster fire. Then the preceding administration to, uh, came in, the Trump administration, and poured a bunch of gasoline on that dumpster fire. Um, and now the Biden administration is trying to use a hose to put out the dumpster fire. We still have a dumpster fire. Um, everything is still broken. Everything is still a mess. And nothing is fixed. It's just now that there's a little bit different of an emphasis on wanting to try to make the outdated, broken, inefficient system we have work a little better. So let's um, let's do your. I think in the in the last uh, we're getting close to a hundred shows now. You're probably somewhere in the mid nineties, if I had to guess, in terms of number of shows. And you're only the second immigration attorney I've had on. So let's do uh, kind of a a real quick um, overview for folks about the different aspects of immigration law. Right? There's deportation and deportation defense, which is a litigation function. Right. And then there's the administrative, there's the transactional, quote unquote, I hate to use transactional as a term about people, but it is a, it's a, it's a legal transactional process. And it's a complex legal transactional process because there are all sorts of exceptions, exemptions, nuances to the ways that people can come into the country legally. So explain to folks, you know, because we, we all see the and hear about the deportation defense part of it because, you know, that's sexy. It's on the news, you know, tents at the border, caravans, all this stuff. So somebody comes in illegally, they catch them. What happens, Bennett? How does that work? 
Yeah, so so that which is the most publicized aspect or in the news aspect is actually a very small part of the overall immigration law picture. So unfortunately, again, because the laws are so old and outdated, you have roughly 11 million or so people in the United States who under the current laws have no way to be here lawfully. And so they either are caught and put into the deportation system or they just live in the shadows um, and hope that the law changes. Um, and because if, if the law doesn't change, there's no way that they're ever going to be able to stay here legally. So that's true for millions and millions of people. Now, those are the ones that get used as political pawns in the news, and so we hear about those the most. But again, that is really just a small component of immigration law. The other areas that you talked about, whether it's family immigration, somebody sponsoring a family member, or business immigration, which is what I do, which is employers sponsoring individuals to work here either temporarily or permanently, people seeking asylum. We certainly hear that a lot in the news now with the Ukraine, refugees and asylees trying to uh, escape war war and other um, disasters from their home country. And then the removal, the deportation piece. So that's fourth on that list that I just gave you. People like to focus on that fourth part, but the other three are actually far more of a day-to-day -day part of the immigration laws and system that we deal with. So a, a couple of things that I that I really love about what, what you do is the first and foremost, if you need somebody who has a specific type of skill and it's unique, right? In the, the I think the parlance that you guys use is extraordinary ability, right? If if you have a like a, a surgeon who does a particular type of surgery and they want to move to Cleveland and they can't get anybody to do this surgery in Cleveland, you can help that person pretty easily get into the country, right? Or if they're a nuclear physicist and they're coming from uh, Eastern Europe and they want to come and, you know, work here in the U.S. and there's only five other nuclear physicists and they can't get them from to move in the country, you can get that person here. Or if they're an athlete or an entertainer and they have this unique ability that's you know you that that's right in your wheelhouse you can you can do that explain to folks that that's kind of a sexy uh immigration type process explain to folks how that works yeah, so at the high end of, of the labor market, which is what you're describing, um, we certainly encourage and want people at the high end of their fields to be able to come here and work here, whether it's temporarily or permanently. And in fact, that extraordinary ability category that you mentioned doesn't even require an employer to sponsor you. If you can show that you're at the very top of your field, um, then of course we want those people in the U.S. and we let that person apply for a green card even without an employer. However, that's meant to be like the top 1% of any given profession. The other 99% rely on an entirely different section of immigration laws that require an employer to sponsor them to come into the United States to work. In some of those categories, like you mentioned, if it's something there's a shortage and there's something where they can't find U.S. workers, that could give them a leg up. But there are other categories where we just don't have enough U.S. workers in the what's called the STEM fields, the science, technology, engineering, and math fields, to fill all of the job openings that there are. And even though there are plenty of job openings for those positions, and there are plenty of employers who would happily sponsor foreign nationals for those jobs, our outdated laws don't have enough numbers 
to fill all those jobs with the talent that's out there. And because of that, the economy suffers as a whole. So uh, I think part of what you're referring to is is the that's the H-1B category, right? Can you explain to folks what that is? Because we hear about that and there's, you know, the, and I think this is the time of year when they start to open up too, right? And there's only a set quantity and there's a bazillion applicants for that set quantity. Explain, please. Yeah, so the H-1B that you talk about, which is the most common temporary work authorized category in the U.S., it's for professional workers who have a degree in a field related to the job um, that's to be done. And so again, typically we see these in those STEM fields. Unfortunately, the 1990 law that we still are using has 65,000 base H-1Bs available, and then we did add subsequently 20,000 more H-1Bs for people with advanced degrees from the U.S. But that's still only 85,000 per year. That is less than one half of 1% of the U.S. workforce. So for 85,000 a year, there's a lottery because as you can imagine, as I just mentioned, the demand far exceeds that supply. This year, as you said, we just went through the registration and lottery for the H-1Bs. There were over 480,000 registrations for those 85,000 H-1Bs. So every year, there are jobs that don't get filled and there are employers who don't get the people they need in order to grow. The other thing about the H-1B that I like to mention at this point is that for every H-1B worker an employer is allowed to hire, they support on average two U.S. workers. So for every H-1B worker that they can't hire because of this outdated quota, that's two new U.S. jobs that don't get created. Yeah, no, that's that's incredible. That's crazy. Uh, Bennett, tell me a little bit about some of the other um, some of the other ways you work with companies to get. Uh, to get them folks that they, you know, because we, we hear about this great resignation, right? Well, there are people out there, maybe from other countries, who have the skills to do these jobs. What what else are employers doing these days? What other uh, what other areas of the law can they explore to try and bring these folks in? Right. So right now, um, we're, what we're talking about with the H-1Bs are temporary or non-immigrant categories. And what employers need to do first is to find a non-immigrant or temporary category to bring someone in to begin with. And so the H-1B is the one. The other big categories that we look to um, are if you're a citizen of Canada or Mexico, um, the NAFTA Treaty created specific um, work authorized categories for those folks. And we also have free trade agreements with Singapore, Chile, and Australia. So they have also an inside track to work in the U.S. If you're not from one of those countries, the next most common thing that we look to is we tell companies if they can establish uh, an entity abroad, some, some companies obviously already do, but even if they don't, if they can establish an entity abroad and there's a relationship between the entity abroad and the entity in the U.S., a parent subsidiary or affiliate branch, something like that. If they hire any foreign national to work abroad at that entity for one year, they can then transfer that person into the U.S. It's called the L1 status, and it's to transfer people from an entity abroad into the U.S. And we recommend this as a great option because it doesn't have a quota. It's not country-specific. So, so long as you have these entities and are employing these people abroad, it's a path to bring people in the U.S. to fill those jobs that you need. Okay. Well, that's great. So is there is there any type of requirement for that entity? Could it be like a five-person entity in like Italy and then, you know, they've been there for a year, then we can take those five people and bring them into the U.S.? So the one requirement is that that entity abroad has to continue to operate. So you right, can't have an entity... Okay 
and then transfer everybody in and shut that entity down. So as long as you have a continuing to operate entity abroad, that could just be one or two people that, that are abroad operating this entity, and it could be based, the entity could have as its sole purpose to hire and employ foreign nationals who are then going to come into the United States. But as long as they're doing work abroad and continue to do business abroad, then that... Um, qualifies as an entity to do this L1. Now, you're the what most of what we talked about so far is is about professional workers. What about like in agriculture, for example? There's a dearth of people uh, like Americans. They don't want to do that. They don't want to do that work. Tourism, hospitality, some of those jobs you're not going to find Americans who are willing to do. Is there a way to bring in folks to work in agriculture, let's say? Is there an opportunity to do that? So unfortunately, the news is even worse for those types of jobs because the system was really never created to fill the jobs that are needed with folks. We have a couple that we try to cram in. Um, to those hospitality or seasonal jobs and those agricultural jobs. But those quotas get filled even faster than the H-1B, um, and they're even harder to get. And for the, for the most part, what you see is this underground economy where people, employers hire people without authorization because there is no legal path for them to get that work done. And as you said, there are no U.S. workers who want to do that work and it's kind of the dirty little secret of immigration law that's existed since 1990 um, when these laws were created and will continue to until, until they're fixed because an employer is not going to choose to go out of business if it's a choice between that and hiring somebody without authorization to be able to survive. Yeah, it's, it's just it's incredible to me that there, we can't find people to do the jobs. There are people from other countries who are willing to do the jobs. We just can't figure out a way to get them here legally. There, the other thing that, that fascinates me, and this probably is not a U.S. immigration problem, but as somebody who, I live in Miami, I spend half my time working in uh, New York and Chicago, and the other half and all over the country, really, and then the other, the other half in Miami. I was coming home... Uh, Four weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago, I take, taking a flight from Los Angeles back to Miami, and it was, you know, it was a, it was a, a god awful flight. It was like an overnight flight and a big plane, and two thirds of the plane were people from Asia coming to Miami. They were picked up by their employer, cruise line, and then taken onto a cruise ship. So. More than likely, those people are not going through the American immigration system, right? They went right from, you know, Singapore or Malaysia to Panama or wherever the cruise ship is registered. So that's not a U.S. immigration issue. The ship just happened to dock here. They got a visa to travel through the United States, but they're not going to work here, right? Right. And it's a special transit visa that allows them to do that. They're not allowed to set foot anywhere in the United States as part of that process. They're really literally only able to just travel to that job and that's it. All right. So let's talk now um, about, I'm going to ask you this question and I want you to, I want you to think about it for, for a sec. If someone is an investor and they want to invest money in the United States, there are certain options that are available to them. And I want you to share with our audience what those, what those options are. Take a minute and think about it. I need to remind folks that we are brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. So since 1983, Sandrowski has provided expert client service all over the United States to folks in the uh, field of private 
privately held businesses and families of affluence. So if you have a privately held business and you want to save money on your taxes, Sindrowski is the company for you. You see the big four accounting firms, most of them will only work with privately held businesses that are massive. Sindrowski works with the middle market. So they'll work with businesses that are privately held that do 300, 400, 500 million in annual revenue. They'll also work with businesses that do 50 million in annual revenue or less. In fact, this is an area where they can save you an enormous amount of money on your taxes because they will review how your business is organized. They will review how you take profit distributions. They will review your entity structure and they will do everything they can to save you money on your taxes. And they provide that big four accounting firm style service that is only available through a firm like theirs to folks in the middle market. So if this is of interest to you, reach out to Sandrowski today. Give them a call at 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. If you'd like to build your professional practice, I've got the business development plan for you, and it's based on relationships and thought leadership. Here's all you need to do. Download your free business development plan at this website, revenueroadmapguide.com. All those words together, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info, download it today. It's my business development plan, and I'm giving it to you for free. It's the same plan I use with my clients. I customize it for them. You can customize it for yourself, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info, download that for free today. My guest today is Bennett Savitz. He's the immigration attorney at Savitz Law Office. You can reach out to him at 617-723-7111, 617-723-7111. All right, Bennett, so tell us about investors. So if you want to plunk down a bag of cash, you can probably come to the United States pretty easily. So there's two options for people who want to do this. There's the temporary option and there's the permanent option. The temporary option's a little quicker. Actually, I should say it's a lot quicker um, and requires less money, but it is limited to countries with which we have a treaty. So if we have a treaty with a specific country, notably India, China, Brazil, big countries that we do not have treaties, and so those aren't included. But if we do have a treaty with a country and somebody is willing to invest in a business, either buy a new business uh, buy an existing business or invest in a new business. It takes about $100,000 and they can invest and work in the U.S., they and their family. They have to at least hire a U.S. worker to grow the U.S. economy. It's called an e-visa and it's a temporary visa specifically for these situations. Good for five years at a time, but renewable indefinitely. So that's the faster, easier way. The longer, harder way, but that results in a green card, is a category for investors who are willing to invest $1.8 million into the United States and hire 10 full-time U.S. workers. And they have to do this over a two-year period. But if they do that, they get a green card, which is obviously permanent for them and their family. So it takes a little longer. It takes more money. It's a bigger investment and, and more hiring. But it results in a green card it is not country specific. However, there are there is a, a quota. All green card categories have quotas. And this one has a quota that has been oversubscribed by people born in China. So as of today, it's not really a useful category for people born in China because there's a several year backlog for those folks. Any other country right now could take advantage of that of that uh, category right now. 
And that is so that is that the EB five uh, yes. program? Yeah. Yes. So is that has that been made permanent, Bennett? For years, it was temporary, and they just kept extending it. Is that now a permanent program? So they're about to try to make it permanent. The reason they kept extending it is because they wanted to change the criteria. So again, created back in 1990, like the rest of the legal immigration system, it used to be a $1 million investment. And then it took until two years ago for them to talk about updating that. And so, you know, 30 years later, they finally decided to update the investment and make it 1.8 million. Went back and forth a bunch without going into all the details. Finally, now we're in the process of finalizing that $1.8 million investment amount, which would then extend this category, not permanently, but for the long term, because again, they want to be able to revisit this as time goes by to up the investment as necessary. And the, the thought process behind it is it's, it stimulates the economy and there are, there are only certain, there has to be a, there, there's, are there still employment requirements? Years ago, I worked with an immigration attorney and there were specific zones, right, where there were uh, high unemployment areas. Is there still a requirement that the investment has to be in a targeted employment zone? So those targeted employment zones um, are going to come back and allow people to invest half of the amount. So uh -huh. a $900,000 investment in a targeted employment area will work. If you want to invest anywhere else that's not targeted employment area, then you would do the full 1.8 million. Regardless of whether it's targeted or not, you still have to have the 10 full-time U.S. workers hired. Because the idea is, is, is this not only to grow the economy, but of course, to, to a job creation category. Keeping in mind, only 10,000 of these per year. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, you know, that, that that's one of those things where everybody was, they were, they were shooting movies using this, this type of financing. They were building resorts up in Vermont using this type of financing. It was, it became a whole cottage industry and it was, uh, it was, it was a little, it was a little wild there for, for a while. All right, Richard. So now I want you to give us kind of the what the process is like. Do it from let's do it from the employer perspective, because that's that's really who's listening. That's really who's watching. So an employer is sitting back and he's looking and he's going, you know, I, I can't I've had these five positions open for the better part of a year. Can't find Americans to fill them. I know there are English speaking folks in I don't know, India, there are English speaking folks in the UK or in Europe who could fill these jobs who would want to come here. So they call you, the employer calls you. What's the process like? Explain what the process is like when somebody calls your office and they got five slots, they get, they, you know, they, they have, they have the wherewithal to go market for these jobs overseas. What is your advice to them? How does it work when they want to hire you to do this for them? Yeah, so the first thing we do is we talk about what their business involves, what kind of entities they have. Do they have an entity abroad where they can hire somebody for a year? Or are they just needing to bring people in to the U.S. who they haven't employed abroad? Is there a treaty in place that allows us to use one of those categories? Who, you know, the citizenship of the individuals. So we have to look at all of this in, in its entirety to come up with a strategy of which options are the best. 
Once we figure out which options are the best, then we put together a plan of what information we need to gather. Now again, this is always employer-driven. So the employer is the one who has to file to sponsor these individuals to get permission to work in the U.S. These, the individuals don't sign off on any of this. This is all done by the employer. And then when they get permission to hire these individuals, the individuals only have permission to work for that employer that sponsored them. So we go through that process, we apply, Usually, it involves both the Department of Labor and the Immigration Service. Um, in some instances, it's just the Immigration Service. So we have to figure that out, too. We file what's needing, needing to be filed, whether it's one or two agencies. Get the approval. If the people are abroad, as in the example you just gave, then there's one final step where they have to go to the U.S. consulate or embassy in their home country to get that visa in their passport, which allows them to travel to the U.S. and then enter and begin working. So about how long is that process? So if I have that issue now, is it like a year before I get people on board? Like, like let's, let's say we're not going to go with the process where we have that entity over in Europe and they're going to work there for a year and then come here. We don't have that. I didn't think of that. We don't have that in place now. I'm, you know, and I got five jobs I got to fill like tomorrow. So Bennett, what's your best, best guess as to how long I got the people, I know they're there. I can go say, all right, we're going to fill out your applications now. How long does it take? Because, you know, the government is a bureaucracy, right? Is there any is there any hope for making it happen relatively quickly or is it just all tied up? Yeah, so fortunately, it, it, uh, at the immigration service side, the USCIS side, most of the applications have what's called premium processing, which is an additional fee, $2,500 per application. But instead of the several-month regular processing time that it takes, premium processing gets you an answer within 15 calendar days. So if you need somebody in a hurry, and let's face it, most employers do, um, then they're happy to pay that premium processing fee to get this done quicker. That's only available with the immigration service. So again, if there's a Department of Labor involvement in this, or when the person has to go to the U.S. Embassy or consulate in their home country to get the visa, there could be delays on those parts of it that we don't have that ability to, to necessarily make it go faster. There are some expedite criteria for getting visas. But, you know, the whole process, certainly you should count on months, not weeks or days, um, to get this done. And, the, and the, the key is to plan ahead. The sooner you can start the process, the farther in advance of when you actually need somebody here, the better. And so to start the process, you do you have to have somebody in mind already? So you have to have, it's, it's based on the person. Correct. So you got to have a person over there who's able to support themselves during the months that it's taking you to bring them over here. That's right. Not only that, you not only have to have the person in mind that because they have to have the qualifications to be able to come in, but you also have the specific job opening that you want them to do. So it's a match between the job opening and the individual who meets the qualifications for that position. And all of that is what is needed up front to make that submission. Now, in some cases, employers these days, especially during COVID, were able to put in place a remote work that's what um, I was possibilities just ask you. so that person yeah. could be working for them abroad while they wait for this to happen. Now, there are some jobs that uh, uh, can, can happen, consulting jobs, tech jobs, where that's great. Obviously, there's a lot of biotech jobs, lab jobs, where remote employment isn't an option. But if it is an option, then that's something a lot of employers try to use to bridge that gap between the time when they've identified the individual and the time they can actually come into the United States. Yeah. 
Great information, Bennett. Thank you. All right, Bennett, I want you to take a minute and think of three things you want us to take away from our time together. Three key things you want people to remember. While you're thinking of that, I need to remind folks that we're brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. They can help you with tax planning, family office advisory, dispute advisory, business valuation, litigation support, forensic accounting, and risk management. If you need help with any of these things, reach out to Sandrowski today. Give them a call at 866 717-1607-866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is a CPA firm with a different perspective. Also, don't forget, you can download for free your Revenue Roadmap Guide. It's my business development plan. You can have it free. Just go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info, and you can download it now for free. All right, Bennett, what are the three things you want us to take away from our time together today? So number one, which I've alluded to, is the fact that our immigration system is outdated and until Congress fixes it, we're stuck with old, outdated, inefficient laws and there's nothing any of us can do about it except to complain to our Congress people that they need to finally fix it. That goes for the legal immigration system, that goes for the family immigration system, that goes for all the green card categories, and that goes for the 11 million people who are here without authorization. None of that is going to work and get fixed until Congress changes our woefully outdated broken immigration laws. Number two, the system that we talk about is governed by the Department of Homeland Security. So in 2003, um, as a response to 9-11, Immigration and Naturalization Services, or INS, was disbanded and replaced with um, the Department of Homeland Security and under it, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, which took over all of the immigration um, law and responsibility from the Department of Justice that existed before it. And so the reason I say that is anything that we do, everything that we do, is applied through the lens of Department of Homeland Security. And their number one objective is to secure the homeland. So people need to understand that things are going to take longer, things are going to be slower, because their number one objective is not to give you your green card, not to give you your worker that you're, you're applying for as an employer. Their number one objective is to protect the United States and then secondarily do the things that we're asking them to do. So that's number two. And then third and finally is that because the system is slow and inefficient, regardless of who is in charge, doesn't matter whether they have good intentions or bad intentions, doesn't matter if they're a Republican, Democrat, or independent, the system is old, broken, and inefficient, so you got to plan ahead. you got to take your time to figure out what you're going to do, and the more time you can figure this out ahead of time, the better. Emergencies aren't great under this system because an emergency is not something that we can then say, oh, okay, well, I can help you get this person here tomorrow. Chances are that's not going to happen. Plan ahead. All right, Bennett Savitz, thank you so much. That was great information. For those of you who want to reach out to Bennett, you can call 617-723-7111, Bennett, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for all that great information you shared with us today. Thank you so much. Alrighty, folks, that'll do it for another episode of the Inside BS Show. We'll be back here again tomorrow with another great interview. Until then, my name is Dave Lorenzo, and here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.